think the beauty of preaching in series is for me is that you get excited about messages. You get excited about preaching a chunk of scripture. And this one today, full disclosure, I wrote this sermon three weeks ago. And I've been annoyed with myself ever since that I haven't preached it yet. So I'm very excited to, to share this one with you today because it's one of those messages that has already spoken to me. It's already corrected me. It's already shifted how I think. It's already changed a little bit of how I relate to Jesus. So if you are catching up with us in the book of Mark, we're slowly, very slowly preaching through the book of Mark, and we start in chapter 1, and we're going through section by section right now. So we start with John the Baptist at the very beginning, and he's, he's the forerunner for everything Jesus is about to do, and he baptizes Jesus, and there's this moment where heaven comes to earth, and the, the heavens are split open, and something miraculous happens as Jesus is empowered. Jesus is immediately then driven into the desert for temptation. And then two weeks ago, Pastor Nikki talked about the calling of the disciples. And that's kind of where we left off. So if you have your Bible this morning, we're going to go in the book of Mark, chapter 1, verses 21 to 28. And I'm reading again from the English Standard Version. It says this, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately, we, we've learned that Mark really likes the word immediately. It appears over 40 times in the book of Mark. And immediately. So for Mark, this was important because it happened immediately. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately... On the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately, immediately, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed. So that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And once his fame spread everywhere throughout all of the surrounding region of Galilee. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how incredibly powerful it is that even all this time later, it's here to speak to us. It's here to transform us. It's here to, to guide us into how we become more like your son. So I just pray, Father, today as we look at scripture, as we analyze it, as we apply it to our lives. 
Father, would you help us reflect Jesus? Would you help us to become more like mirrors of Jesus to the people around us and less like ourselves? Would you guide us? Would you protect us? Would you keep your ever-present hand upon us? In Jesus' name, amen. This is a big chunk of scripture, and it's one that we easily just kind of roll past as, well, this happened, good, great. We move on to what happens next. But there's, there's a couple questions we need to answer about this particular text. And the first one is, what did the original audience see? What did the original audience understand about this piece of scripture? In the ancient Near East and in Canaanite and Jewish literature, there was a, a recipe that would be used for deliverance narratives. So it's not uncommon for someone to be delivered from an unclean spirit by some means. And so in different types of writings, different types of journals, you, you can go back through the different historians and you find these narratives kind of spelled out. And there was a, a simple recipe that they would use in each narrative. There would be a description of the scene, a description of the problem, then the miracle itself, uh, the proof of the miracle, and the acclamation of onlookers. And so the acclamation of onlookers is where we see in this scripture, for instance, where they were amazed. Everyone saw it, and they're like, wow, this happened, and everyone was amazed. Where Mark breaks the pattern is really important. It's really important. The first thing he points out is that the demon tries to control the situation. So by using the element of fear, the demon tries to control the situation. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. The, the second thing that happens in here that's unique with Jesus is that there's a command narrative. So in, in many ancient writings, they would use different things, an amulet or rings or something like that to try and drive out an evil force. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus commands it and it obeys. Now that is something very specific to Jesus' ministry, something that he, he passes on then to the disciples. The third thing that is kind of unique about this chunk of scripture is that it opens and closes with astonishment. They were already amazed at what Jesus was teaching. They were already in awe of how powerful he was. Then it happened. Then we have the closure, where they're again amazed and in awe of what Jesus is doing. This understanding to the first century readers would be really dramatic and really capture their attention. I feel like we really become desensitized to these things. Because you can watch a Marvel movie or, or whatever you want, and we become desensitized to the power of the supernatural. And so we just kind of brush through these scriptures. Well, that wasn't that dramatic. He told it to go away, and it went away. So no big deal. It's a big deal. For, for ancient readers, this is a big deal. Jesus is really setting a, a precedent for what's happening. And this brings us to the, the second question we need to answer is, what was he teaching? 
And sometimes the fact that something happened is just as important as what happened. It's like if you, when we were church planting, we would do events. And sometimes you just like, it feels like you're just throwing things against a wall and hoping that something sticks and something is going to work and you just hope it's anything. But at the end of the day, the fact that it happened had power itself. And so in this instance, Jesus is showing something to the crowd. He's showing something to the, the later, the readers. But by coming into the temple and kind of putting his foot down and saying, no, you know what, we don't do that anymore. There, there's no room for demonic influence in church. I'm sorry, this is God's house, and we're not going to play this game. Be quiet and get out of him. That right there was a dramatic event that happened. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. When we, when we look at maybe what was he teaching, well, think about what did Jesus teach all the other times. It's said that um, so for a pastor or a preacher that you have, you have those first three, four sermons you write that are going to set the precedent for what your career is going to look like. I remember when I was in college, I had never preached before in my life. And I was at this little Bible college and we, we had to teach a message out of the book of Proverbs because they figured that's an easy one. And so being the arrogant little twerp I was, I said, well, clearly I will just teach from the crafty harlot. That looks hilarious. So this is the only message I prepped was the crafty harlot. And I thought it was funny. And so I, I preached it in class and apparently it went well. And so I, I was asked, okay, Colleges used to do this thing before COVID where they would travel around and one of the students would preach and you'd have the little worship band that was usually quite terrible and they'd have a testimony and ask for money. So these things would travel around church to church. And so at one of these, I was asked, well, you're the only one who can actually put a couple sentences together apparently because I didn't think it was that good. And so you get to preach the message at this church. I'm like, okay, cool. I prepped nothing said I was arrogant. I prepped nothing. I preached the crafty harlot. And it was the worst moment of my life to realize that everyone was judging me. And I'm glad that that was not the message for me that stuck out of the first three to five. I'm glad that I took that moment as a learning moment and started really absorbing the scripture and understanding that maybe my message needs to be it doesn't matter how much you have messed up. It doesn't matter what your life looked like. It doesn't matter what kind of a disaster you think you are. Jesus says you're going to make it. And so that kind of became my, my mantra, and I'm sure you've realized that by now. But Jesus tells us throughout the Gospels, every time he speaks, every time he opens his mouth, every time he's discipling or coaching, he kind of tells us what his heart is, and because Jesus came to seek and save the lost. 
In Mark 10, 45, he goes on to say that, that the Son of Man came to serve, not become a servant. And so he has this very specific message that, that he teaches. And it's interesting, they, they say that you don't teach like the scribes. You don't teach like the Pharisees. It's, you speak with authority. Well, up until this time, much like we have today, you have commentators. You have people that are already explaining the scriptures for you so that you don't have to do any thinking. That's a joke. You guys are all late to the party on that one. But Jesus comes in, and instead of sharing opinion, instead of sharing someone else's ideas, he just comes in and redirects everything back to the heart of God. He did this through his entire ministry career. What's important? Not this stuff. Let's talk about this. The third question we're going to answer, and then we'll come back to that, is where was Jesus teaching? And this is kind of important, the, the where and the why Jesus was teaching. Through Jesus' ministry career, he, he has four different places in the temple where he speaks. And in this particular instance, we have the indication that it's in this place called the, the courts of Israel. So this is a little further in. This is a place where if you're a Gentile, you're not going in there. The, the higher-up scribes, the higher-up rabbis, this is where they're going to teach so that they don't have to be anywhere near the unclean people. So Jesus is in here teaching. This is the elite. These are the chosen people of God. These are the people that kind of matter. So in today's context, let's, let's say we're an important church, and we make an invitation to somebody really awesome, and we're like, would you, I don't know, Judas Smith, would you come to Calvary Temple in Brandon? He would say no, but let's pretend he said yes, and would you, would you share the message? And it's going to be a packed house at a third capacity, and it's going to be an absolutely amazing time. This is, this is the, the all-star rabbi is being invited into the good service. You're being invited to speak and it's going to be amazing. So let's go back to his message. Now, although we don't have everything laid out for us in the scripture as to what he spoke that day, all we can do is figure, okay, this is what he spoke every other time. Clearly, he's going to start there. He's going to be teaching about grace. He's going to be teaching about acceptance. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He came to seek and save souls and, and hearts and those people around him that need help. I wonder with this scripture, though, I often wonder about the guy. So you've got a room full of people. Jesus is teaching to them. And you've got that one guy. The guy with the unclean spirit. I wonder about him. Because he was clearly good enough to be with the chosen. He was sitting in church with everyone else. 
He wasn't left outside the gates, having to listen from afar. He was in there with the rest of them. He was in community. He was living life, learning at the pace that the others were learning. He went to church that day to synagogue, just like everyone else. He had a really terrible week at church. But let's say this is one of your friends. You're in church, one of your friends has a, this massive outburst, and you're like, whoa, why did I bring this guy? What do you do with that? Like on a personal level, let's say you're sitting there, Bob, and, and you bring someone from Oak River, because, I mean, Oak River. And this guy has this fit. And, and all of a sudden, he starts speaking with the voice of a demon, like, whoa. I often wonder about that guy. What happened to him? So Jesus cast a demon out of him. Did he still have friends? I wonder about that guy. Think back to the story of the temptation that we looked at. So immediately after the baptism, Jesus is in the desert. And Satan comes to tempt him. And Jesus refused to let him have control. He refused to let him have control. In the version as Matthew tells it, it goes a little different. He goes into, into some more details. It says that when he was already famished, Satan came along and said, don't you just want some food? Because we can turn the, these, like there's some rocks there and we can, we can totally make those rocks into bread and it'd be pretty great for you. When he was already famished, he was, he was already probably later on into his fasting. And Satan comes along and says, you don't need to really fulfill your mission because you're hungry. And what you want matters more, so why don't you just eat? And Jesus says, no, I will not give up control. And then he keeps going and, and he says, okay, if you just fall out and the angels will catch you and it'll be pretty dramatic and pretty cool. And Jesus is like, no, stop. That's what the word says. And he tries again. He says, look, you can have all the wealth, all the fame. Your opinions will matter because of me. Jesus said, I don't care. Stop. And he refused to give up control to the enemy. The enemy wants to control Jesus' narrative. Make it sound a little more like him. In the book of Mark, as we, as we read, it, it continues. Because what is the devil doing in this situation? He's trying to control the narrative. Here's how, because words are important. Today, if you use somebody's name, it's nice. People call me by my name. I like that. It shows respect. It shows honor. Um, I was called something today that I haven't been called since I left home. 
um, and I consider home back in the hat. But someone called me Padre today. And it might seem really insignificant even to that person. Um, but one of, my, one of my good friends back home, he never called me pastor. He always called me Padre. And I knew from him it was a term of endearment. Because he came from a, a world where he didn't really respect pastors. He'd been burnt a lot. And so for him to say Padre, it meant a lot. But when we, when we use words, when we, when we talk to people, when we use their name today, it, it means something. The tone shifts maybe with your kids. Like if I'm, if I'm angry about something and I, and I say, Ida, come here, um, probably not a big deal. If I say, Ida, Esther, Lily, Fisher, get your butt in this room right now. She knows it's about to go down. In the ancient world, the use of someone's name was a way of putting your control over them. I know who you are. That's the first thing the demon tried to do. I know who you are, Jesus of Nazareth. You are the son of God. What do you want? He's like, shut up. Get out of him. He refused to be controlled in the situation. It strikes me that one associated with the chosen brought control elements and fear into the house of God. It strikes me as something painful. He brought fear to the party in an attempt to get life off mission. Jesus was trying to say, guys, we need grace. We need to, we need to do the things that I came to do to seek and save the lost. And the devil tries to sneak back in at church and says, whoa, 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 whoa. I want to try and control this one more time. The good news of Jesus, of change and grace and love, and accepting otherness at the expense of our pride. It's tough. It's tough. For me, I've grown up in church most of my life. My dad is a pastor. And I've seen, I've seen a lot. But every time, it has to do with fear and control. They're best friends. Fear and control are best friends. They go hand in hand. The problem is, is when we let them be in charge, they'll take it. You give them an inch, they'll take a mile. My wife and I, we laugh. One of our favorite theologians that we follow, because we're cool like that. Do you follow any celebrities? No, but let me tell you about the theology world. Um, one of our, our favorite guys that we follow um, to cut the, the legs off of fear and people trying to control narratives. They started reading um, angry tweets. So if someone sends them a stupid email or an angry tweet or gets his text number and texts them something angry, 
uh, they just read them now and uh, put videos out. And it's, um, to me, it's hilarious. But the purpose is that you don't let fear control you because it wants to. Call it what it is. It's control and it doesn't need to exist in your life. People will try to control you. The devil will try to control you. Control reacts in a way that it wants to emphasize the key work of the devil in your life. And that is to make you feel alone and to make you feel isolated. If you can feel alone and isolated, the devil wins. He wants nothing more for you than for you to feel alone and isolated. Nobody likes you. You're doing a terrible job. Alone and isolated. I remember a time where I was having a really rough day. It was absolutely awful. And it was one of those days where you just cry. I don't know if you've ever had those. It's just like everything hits you at once and you just, you just lay there and you cry. I remember that day because Jesus spoke clearly to me through three people and said, you're not alone. Someone drove 45 minutes to come and pray with me because God told him to. Another friend just out of the blue, we generally talk once a year we're good with that. I like him. He's a great guy, but it's not much to say. Calls just out of the blue and says, hey, I was, I was just thinking about you right now, and how are you? God doesn't want you to feel alone. God doesn't want you to feel isolated, and he's going to go to great lengths to make sure you don't feel that way. It's our job to listen. It's our job to listen. Satan wants that for you, for you to feel alone. Do you know what Jesus wants? For you to feel loved. For you to feel at peace. Jesus wants you to stop listening to the lie that you're alone, that you're isolated, that you're not good enough. In Jesus' narrative, when he comes in and preaches and speaks, and shows grace, and shows love, and shows acceptance through the Gospels. It's a complete and total different narrative than everyone had heard up until that point. And apparently it drove a demon crazy because it aligned with the heart of God, that you are enough, that you are loved, that you are going to make it. We've talked many times in this church since I've been here, so not that many times about something called the the four G's of the gospel. It's these four understandings that if we can absorb them into our hearts, we can absorb them into our lives, we can see how God is working. And the first one is that God is great. God is great. So you don't have to be in control. He's got this. people on the main floor, people in the balcony and online, God's got this. 
He's got you. The second is that God is glorious. And we sung this one out so you don't have to fear others. People love it when you're afraid of them. I don't know. Start reading out angry messages. Make videos out of it. I guarantee people will stop. Do you know what we did when we were youth pastors? It was right when uh, cell phones were starting to become a thing. That's how long ago it was. And so you'd have students coming and they had their cell phones and um, they get texts during small groups or texts during youth services. And it got annoying. And so finally I said, okay, new rule. You get a text message during service. I'm going to read it. So I highly recommend you turn your phone off. Like, oh, you would never do that. You care too much. It, it only took two times. And that was it. Number three, God is good. So I don't need anything else. The goodness of God. Scripture tells us the kindness of God leads us to repentance. I always find it funny when people love to argue people to Jesus. The kindness of God leads us to true repentance. And number four, God is gracious. You don't need to prove yourself. You don't need to prove yourself. Would you guys stand with me this morning? I'm going to pray for you. We're so blessed to have Maria with us this morning. Um, so COVID's tough on volunteers. It is tough on worship leaders and staff and the whole works. And um, everyone was tired. And so I said, I, I can handle this. So I called a friend of mine in Winnipeg, a guy that I went to college with off and on, and we became good friends. And I said, Paul, I need a worship leader to step in for a week and help. And uh, it wasn't long before he, he called back. He says, okay, I've got it. He said, I'm going to send you Maria. She's amazing, and you guys are going to love her, and she's going to fit in, and it's going to be amazing. But it's moments like that, too, where we feel alone, we feel isolated, because it's like, well, we're in Brandon. Nothing wrong with Brandon, but we're in Brandon. And there isn't an abundance everywhere of, like, extra people you can pull in from here or hire this person. Or... And so to have friendships and, and to feel like, well, we're not alone because we're the body of Christ, so the meeting place sends us help, and maybe we'll send you help one day. We'll give you Tammy. Don't clap. <laughs> That's mean. We like Tammy. We'll give you Charles. He hasn't started yet. It's a joke. But when we help each other, when we've got each other's back, we resemble what God has been trying to teach us the whole time, that we are not alone. If you know someone that needs help, jump in. 
Get involved in their life. How can I help you? You're clearly struggling with this. Let me take the weight off your shoulders. I'm going to invite you to close your eyes. I believe this morning as we, as we stand in a place where we, we want to accept the, these things, we want to accept the goodness of God, we want to accept how great he is, the, the problem is, is that there, there's still those elements of fear that people want for you. There's still those elements of fear that keep creeping up that the devil wants to install into your life and drive in there. And we're going to pray today and we're going to believe for change in Jesus' name. We're going to pray today and we're going to believe that God has better plans for you, that God has a better message for your life. So Lord God, over our church today, we thank you that you are in control. We thank you, Lord God, that we do not have to fear. We do not have to fear a virus because you are in control. You've got this. We don't have to fear situational outcomes because you are still in control. Father God, we know that your heart is soft for your people. We know that grace pours, that love pours so easily. And so, Father, today we just accept that grace in the place of fear. We do not choose fear, but we choose peace and love and a sound mind. We thank you, Lord God, that you are good. We thank you, Lord God, that you are glorious. We thank you, Lord God, that you are great. We thank you, Lord God, that you are gracious. And we choose to accept that today into our lives, into our church, into our relationships. We choose to accept you above anything else. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.